Welcome to Fintech for the People. I'm Amit Parbu, your host and the managing partner of Axion Venture Lab. If you're tuning in for the first time, Axion Venture Lab is a global early stage investor in startups that are bringing affordable, well-designed financial services to underserved people across the world. This is our fifth season of Fintech for the People, and I'm excited that we'll be talking about climate fintech, an area of fintech that aims to address one of the biggest challenges we face today, climate change. For this season, we invited five speakers bringing different areas of expertise to share their knowledge on the space and innovations they are excited about. They come, you'll see, with different perspectives as investors, entrepreneurs, industry experts, and I'm excited for them to help us frame this conversation, knowing that low-income populations are contributing the least to climate change, but are also the most vulnerable to their impacts. With that, I'd like to introduce our first guest, Howard Miller. Howard is a director on climate at the Center for Financial Inclusion, for short, CFI, an independent global think tank housed within Axion. Howard works on developing an understanding of how financial services can help low-income people prepare for and respond to climate-related risks. It's wonderful to have you join us, Howard. No problem, Ami. I'm very happy to be on. Super. Well, before we jump into the topic of this episode, I'd love to hear more about your background and and what brought you to this intersection of climate and financial inclusion. Uh, Sure. So I've been working in financial inclusion for about 15 uh, years now. So, you know, straight out of uh, university, I went and I moved to Uganda. I worked for the Ministry of Finance in Uganda uh, for a couple of years working on financial sector uh, policy there. I then started in consulting and moved back to London. This was, you know, about 10 years ago. It was an exciting place to be and did a lot of work with DFID at the time, setting up new FSDs in, in Uganda and Mozambique got increasingly interested in agricultural, rural finance, you know, did a lot of uh, research at the time into kind of the role of finance in food systems and kind of smallholder resilience there. Then in 2015, I moved to India, got a lot more involved in kind of rural finance uh, research, but also in kind of, you know, this was the early days of UPI and digital finance in India and got really interested in kind of the impact of these changes happening in India, did a lot of work on uh, the early days of fintech in India, did work for the FSD network on fintech in in Mozambique and Zimbabwe as well. And then I did a lot of uh, work with EFAD on their new rural finance strategy. And then about a year and a half ago, CFI asked me to come and start thinking about climate and financial inclusion. So I came at it very much from this kind of rural smallholder finance angle. But, you know, I'd known CFI for a while and thought it would be a good opportunity to try and kind of build something new in this sector. So tell us more about your work now at CFI. CFI has been at the forefront of core issues related to financial inclusion for the past 15 years. You all are now a few years into the new strategy and climate was identified as a core focus. So can you tell us more about CFI's history, but also why climate was identified as a core focus? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, CFI has been around for a long time since the global financial crisis. So CFI is 15 years old now. And I think it's it's gone through a lot of strategies and a lot of iterations. But about three years ago, when they developed this new strategy, you know, I think not just CFI, but the financial inclusion sector as a whole was having a bit of a kind of an identity crisis. This whole, you know, the kind of financial inclusion for what? 
we've had these great strides in measurable metrics of access and usage, but you know, what are we doing this for? How are we Im helping improve people's livelihoods and, and opportunities and resilience, particularly for poorest people? And so I think it was this question of financial inclusion for what? And there was this kind of emergent theory of change. The CGAP developed around opportunities and resilience. And, you know, this is what we need financial systems to do, support opportunities and, and support resilience. And I think it's part of that second part about resilience, you know, resilience to what? You know, what are the, the big challenges facing low-income populations? And obviously, climate change is there and it's massive. And it's already having, you know, enormous impact, particularly on people who are already poor and marginalized. And I think the financial inclusion sector didn't really have, have an answer to that. I think we've been dabbling around the outskirts of it for, with a lot of work, particularly in rural and agricultural finance. But we didn't really, I think, have a good handle on what financial inclusion or, or financial systems need to do to help people respond to climate change. Uh, and so CFI took that on in its strategy and thought, you know, this is where we can really add value to, to the sector as a whole, to kind of really build out our understanding of what our financial systems really actually need to do in the context of climate change. Talking about financial institutions and what they can do, CFI recently released the Green Inclusive Finance Report, which everyone listening should, should really check out. It shares a, a framework for understanding the various impact pathways through which financial services can help around mitigation, resilience, adaptation, and transition. So could you help define those terms for the audience? Uh, and it'd be great if you could also share the findings from the research. Yeah, sure. So when we started thinking about this, we uh, did a lot of research into the world of, of climate and, you know, the, the frameworks and the taxonomies and that it already existed there because we wanted to come up with something that was, you know, valuable to that, but also that was the work for the financial inclusion sector. And obviously there's terms like resilience, which appear prominently in both of these worlds and often mean different things to different people. But, you know, we come from the financial inclusion world and we really, we thought that these four, what we called impact pathways, kind of got to the core of what we felt um, financial services could do in a way that, you know, also made, made sense for the climate world. So the first of these is mitigation. And, you know, this is about the adoption of, of practices and technologies that can improve environmental conditions and reduce carbon emissions. You know, this is what a lot of the global conversation is about. How do we, how do we make the change to renewable energy? How do we reduce the emissions of countries and of people and of businesses? The second one is about resilience. And here we use, uh, we use resilience kind of to mean almost the, the ability to absorb a shock. How do you reduce your vulnerability to, how do you manage through, how do you recover from a climate-related um, event like a flooding or hurricane? You know, how can financial services make you more resilient to these shocks? The third one is adaptation. And this could a longer-term perspective on how, how can financial services help people invest in the changes they need to make to their lives and to their livelihoods in response to climate-related risks. And, you know, these three terms, mitigation, resilience, adaptation, 
we didn't come up with them, right? Like they already are pretty heavily used and, and understood, but we, we wanted to give a, a clearer definition of how we think of them in inclusive finance. But we also realized that they didn't capture enough. And there was also this, this issue of, of what we call the transition. We know that climate change is going to eliminate livelihood strategies of a large number of vulnerable people. You know, the way that they currently make their livings are no longer going to exist due to climate change uh, in decades to come. And financial services needs to help these people too in shifting to new livelihood strategies. You know, whether it's in response to or in anticipation of of climate-related shocks. You know, if you are a fisherman and, you know, your your community gets is particularly vulnerable to a sea level rise, you might need to move away. A lot of there's going to be large numbers of climate refugees who are going to have to transition to new livelihoods. Different agricultural strategies aren't going to work. And people are going to have to transition to new approaches in a way that goes beyond adaptation. Um, so these four pathways, mitigation, resilience, adaptation, transition, kind of formed the core of, you know, how we're thinking about climate and this um, kind of related area that uh, we called in that paper, green inclusive finance. But maybe, Howard, are, are those pathways all made equal? I mean, does CFI have a perspective on what we need to focus on, you know, whether it's transition or the mitigation or building resilience sort of how do you think about those different pathways in comparison to one another? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think it's important to, to kind of realize there's different conversations happening here, right? So th like the big macro level global conversations are necessarily about mitigation. Right? We need to come up with better plans and execute on those plans to drastically reduce carbon emissions over the next uh, few years. The conversations that we're having in, in the context of low-income and vulnerable people in the poorest countries in the world, on, you know, the, the mitigation argument is just not really relevant to them. You know, if you're a, a smallholder farmer in Uganda, you know, your emissions are irrelevant to the global conversation. You know, you might, you might run a diesel engine or something. You might cook on coal or wood, but your emissions are not what needs to be mitigated. And so I don't think that the mitigation conversation is as important from the perspective of the poorest people in the world. What I think is much more important is to think about how climate change is going to impact these people. And that is much more about resilience and adaptation. And in the financial inclusion sector, these are much more difficult conversations to have because we know much less about it. Right? It's, it's very easy to go and invest in a pay-go solar model because that business case is established. And you know, you, we know what the data is to measure impact. We know what the investment case is. We know that if you have a business plan based on reducing the cost of a technology to, due to solar, replacing, you know, say, a diesel generator, then you know, that's a pretty good business case. We don't know very much about resilience and adaptation and how financial services can help the most vulnerable people. So I think that's where, and CFI, we're up at think tank trying to move the industry forward on this. And so from my perspective, we want to be talking a lot more about resilience and adaptation. We also want to be introducing this idea of transition, knowing that it's a much, again, much more difficult, but much longer term 
concepts. But one of the, the key arguments that we're trying to sort of put across as a think tank is that for the most vulnerable people, the mitigation conversation is relatively small compared to the needs around resilience and adaptation. That's such a powerful point that low income and vulnerable people, they've contributed the least to climate change and they suffer the most from its impacts. So let's talk about solutions. From your perspective and from the research that CFI has done, how can inclusive fintech companies, especially fintech, help vulnerable populations prepare for and respond to climate risks? I think, first of all, it's useful to think about the risks associated with climate change, break them down into shocks and stresses. So, right, shocks, we're talking about the things that can happen quickly. Heat waves, hurricanes, flooding. These shock events, which are made more frequent, more extreme, less predictable by climate change. And then you've got stresses, which are, you know, longer term changes, things like sea level rise, uh, things like salinization of arable land, things like reduced annual precipitation, hotter summers that play out over a longer time period, but are the things we, people are going to have to adapt to unless we make some radical shifts in the, in the global economy. So in terms of the shocks, you know, this is really about helping people, you know, what can we do before, during, and after an event to build resilience? And, you know, insurance is an obvious case in point here. You know, I know you guys are invested in Pula, which has done amazing things in expanding our understanding of what agricultural index insurance can do. You know, if we use weather data effectively, you know, we can build those kind of compensation schemes into financial models. And, you know, I think that's, that's, that's powerful, but it's not limited to agriculture. We've seen really exciting examples of heat index insurance being sold to urban populations in, in Ahmedabad, in Gujarat. You know, I think there's a lot that we can do around inclusive insurance when we think about including more uh, climate-related data. Um, but there's also, I think, a lot we need to think about in terms of getting money to people when they need it in a crisis. And there's, you know, the humanitarian financial inclusion sector has been grappling with a lot of these things for a long time. But I think we need to put uh, a, a climate angle over these things as well. Things like secure savings and the networks and the infrastructure to ensure people can access their money when they really need it. Things like social protection schemes that get money to people in crisis. There's really interesting work around anticipatory payments so that you know, when we know an extreme climatic event is about to happen, getting money to people before it happens rather than scrabbling around afterwards. And how do we lend to people when they're most vulnerable after, say, a flooding or a hurricane? There's all sorts of consumer protection risks around lending money to people when they're most vulnerable. And, you know, at CFI, we also do a lot of work on consumer protection. And that intersection uh, is something we need to think uh, long and hard about, I think, before supporting more, more models that, that might be focused on digital credit. So that's on the shock side. On the stresses, you know, this is much more about investments, right? It's, it's longer term investments. How do we develop the, the business models that mean financial institutions can lend to people for things like investments in new farming practices, new types of inputs that are more uh, resilient to extreme weather events? You know, we've as I said at the beginning, we've worked in, in rural and agricultural finance for a long time. And there's so many things that we 
haven't even got near to getting right. And climate change exacerbates a lot of the risk factors. So there's a lot more work that, that we need to do to think about what are the practices that, that, that farmers need to, to take up and how can we um, help them invest in them and manage the risks around that. But there's also things, you know, we think about, this isn't just about smallholder farmers, we also think about the urban poor, we think about uh, coastal communities. Now, there's a lot of investments that need to happen around improved housing. You know, we're, we're doing some research at the moment into how people cope with um, extreme heat uh, in India and Pakistan. And, you know, how can microfinance lenders help people with the small loans that they need to install heat reflecting panels on their homes? How do we help them invest in wash facilities that are more adapted to, to climate change? So we think there's a lot. This comes from just kind of a scan of what financial institutions are already doing. I'm sure, you know, every time I speak, every time I travel and speak with financial institutions, you know, there are new things that are coming out. But I think the, the critical thing is to start from the point of how is climate change impacting low-income and vulnerable populations and then get to what can financial services do. So how is CFI tackling these issues around climate resilience? Who are the stakeholders you work with and who are the stakeholders that are critical to, you know, this shift toward resilience and adaptation that you talked about? It's a great question. And it's a slightly unusual area for CFI because mostly what we do is talk to the financial inclusion community, right? You know, we're a, a smallish think tank sitting in this industry and we're trying to influence those around us about, you know, what we see as the, the important issues around climate. But within this topic, there's also this other conversation that we are a part of around the bigger kind of climate green finance world. And, you know, we need to make the case that if you are serious about getting climate finance to the people that need it most, to the poorest and most vulnerable people, you know, those people need financial systems to work for them. And you need to, you know, financial inclusion plays a critical role in that world too. So we have this kind of two audiences that we're always uh, speaking to, which can get uh, confusing. The way that we do it is really, you know, there's three areas of our strategy. So the first is about research, mainly demand-side research, understanding the data that's already out there and, you know, the data that we can get access to, to really dig deeper into these impact pathways, understanding in much more detail for specific populations, for smallholder farmers, for uh, low-income urban women, you know, how can financial services support their resilience? How can financial services, you know, what are the adaptive technologies that they need to invest in and going much more granular on that. The second part is about financial service providers. So, you know, we, we speak a lot with different financial service providers, with banks, MFIs, fintechs, to really understand what are their product offerings? You know, how are they thinking about climate? What, what are the models that they have developed? You know, how are they using data to help their customers respond to climate change? So we're interested in what's already out there, but we're also interested in what could possibly be out there. So we're planning to develop a couple of pilots to try and push out this innovation frontier a little bit of what financial products can do to help people respond to, to climate change. And then the third part 
is uh, what we kind of broadly refer to as the, the enabling environment, which includes policymakers, regulators, donors, investors. To, you know, with them, we're really trying to further the, the understanding of what financial services can do to help people respond to, to, to climate change. And with this argument that, you know, we need to focus much more on resilience and, and adaptation and transitions and not just on the kind of low-hanging fruit around uh, mitigation. So, you know, we speak with policymakers who are developing financial inclusion strategies to understand how climate risk can be incorporated into them. We're working with, with donors, for example, we're working with GIZ, we're working with UNSGSA's office to dig deeper in specific regions or specific contexts to understand the role of policy and kind of help develop the, the industry's advocacy agenda around this. That's great. And I'd love to hear if there are any examples you can give of that second stakeholder group, the financial institutions and pushing the innovation frontier. Can you speak to any of the pilots that you're currently testing there or any, any of the innovations that you're especially excited about? Yeah, so we've been doing some research in Guatemala um, for a while now. We were there uh, last year. We've had a good number of conversations with partners there because, you know, this scope of research really identified a few of the opportunities and, and kind of the needs for financial services. And so at the moment, so now we're looking to find a partner with whom we could test these. So, for example, you know, we went and did some uh, focus group discussions with farmers in the, in the Western Highlands in Guatemala. A lot of them said that the working capital loans that they had um, that they'd received, so, you know, they had access to credit, they'd borrowed to invest in their farms, but last year in Guatemala, the, the rains were you know, four to five weeks late. So they harvested four to five weeks late. Their income came four to five weeks late, at which point they were at risk of defaulting on, on their loans. So there we were thinking, you know, that, that seems like a, a solvable problem, right? What if the lenders to those farmers incorporated weather and climate data into their products? What if there was a, a trigger on those repayments that only came in when the rains came? What are the ways that relatively simple data like that can improve the design of a financial product? You know, so that's, you know, one thing that we've, we would like to test, but we're pretty agnostic as to the institution. You know, obviously a lot of the innovation in this space is coming from fintech, some of the ones that you are invested in. But I think there's a big wide open space to, to develop new models, bring in new forms of data new distribution models that that more directly respond to climate-related risks. And I like that example because it's, you know, it, it feels so simple, but, you know, also, you know, the change management within that, within a financial institution to actually get that to happen is also not easy. Yeah, absolutely. The new data that needs to be incorporated is really powerful, but it's a huge change for what financial institutions are used to using. Uh, you know, we talked about agriculture and there's a good amount of attention being given to ag lending and digitizing ag value chains. How do we make sure when we're investing in or or for those operating companies in the ag space that we're incorporating this climate lens? As I said the, at the top, you know, I come from this world of, of rural and agricultural finance. So I also came at this from a kind of agri perspective. And, you know, I don't think that's a problem. I think it's it's natural if you think about the, the big impact the climate is going to have, the climate change is going to have, the poorest and most vulnerable people in the world, you know, something like 70% of them are still getting the majority of their income from smallholder agriculture, right? Just the, the absolute numbers 
of people involved in agriculture that are going to be um, impacted by, by climate change is massive. Uh, so that's the direct, but also, you know, the impact on food systems is colossal. You know, we need to think about that and that all goes down to agriculture. So I think, you know, at a systems level and at a kind of understanding who is impacted and, and the impact on smallholder farmers in particular, I do think that that is, it's kind of inevitable, but we are trying to resist that a little bit by also, you know, working in these other areas. And you know, as, I, as I mentioned, you know, I think the, the three groups that, that it's important to think about in particular, you know, smallholder farmers, the urban poor, including migrants and coastal and river communities. So I think within those three groups, you cover the vast majority of, of the most vulnerable populations. But in terms of, you know, how investors, how, you know, agri fintechs can, can support this, there is already interest, really interesting work going on to incorporate weather data. You know, we talked about, about Pula. Pula didn't, wasn't founded as a response to climate change, right? They, they saw an opportunity to, to bring weather data into agricultural uh, index insurance the blurring of the line between weather and, and climate, I don't think we really need to, to get into. But I think we do need to realize that particularly in agriculture, the outputs and the incomes of, um, of farmers are going to be made, are going to be heavily impacted by climate change. And therefore, the financial services that they need and the investments that they need to make are going to be impacted by climate change. So I think I would, I would, I would go to that. I would, th I would think about how is climate change going to change the risk that particularly smallholder farmers are facing? How's it going to impact their incomes? How's it going to impact their, their, their expenditures? And then, you know, what can financial services do to kind of bridge that gap? And another group that we often talk about being impacted um, or being integral to fighting the climate crisis would be women. There was recently a, a study that was done that explained how critical women are in fighting the climate crisis. Why do you think women's role uh, is so critical? And, and for financial institutions, how should we, again, be sort of better incorporating that learning? Yeah, I think that's a, a very big question. And, you know, I, I'm not sure how qualified I am on the, on the last part of it. You know, there's, there's people within this sector far more qualified than I am to, to answer that. But certainly, you know, we know that low-income women, specific groups of low-income women, are much more vulnerable to the risks of, of climate change, you know, particularly the likelihood of working in the informal economy and being unable to work due to, to climate shocks. All this, the kind of uh, power dynamics and, and biases that already marginalize women in a lot of economies are going to be exacerbated by climate change. There's plenty of data out there, including, um, I'm sure the study you just referenced, that that shows that the majority of the burden of climate change globally is going to fall on women, in particular low-income women. And we also know from Findex, and what we all see, is that women are also massively excluded from financial systems in a way that I don't think we, the work that we've been doing in financial inclusion over the last 20 years, I think we would have hoped that we, that, that gap would have closed and that low-income women around the world would have access to the financial tools to, that they need to help them manage their lives. And I think that, you know, we, we haven't got there. And I think, so you've got this confluence of, you know, a greater impact and, and less capacity to manage uh, these risks. So I do think that, and it's something that we're trying to do at, at CFI is to think uh, more specifically about climate and financial inclusion 
in the context of women and different groups of women and different livelihoods that are predominantly followed by women to build a better understanding of that. But I'm afraid I can't answer the last part of it. It's, it's definitely to somewhere that we want to, we see a huge need for, for more research. Yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Two more questions for you, Howard. You know, one, as climate becomes a space with lots of money, we're seeing a lot of promises around environmental impact, but some of which is clearly not playing out the way it's been promised. Um, this is something we talk a lot about within Axio and Venture Lab, but, but how should we encourage entrepreneurs and investors, you know, to look out for and to avoid greenwashing, especially for those of us who are kind of coming into climate from more of a financial inclusion lens? It's really difficult. And it's, you know, something that I think we see all the time. And I think we see increasingly as, as these terms become more, more developed. I would certainly be suspicious of people and organizations just using terms like green, like net zero, without backing them up, right? If you're a, a bank offering a green loan, you know, you should be able to say what that means. You should be able to justify why you're using it. You know, there's a problem with these kind of forced binaries, right? If, if a financial product is green or it's not. So I think, you know, it's not, it's not terribly helpful. I would certainly recommend, you know, go beyond the terminology and dig into who is saying this, wh what else are they saying, and why are they saying it? I would say, think about systems. Yeah, try and think in systems. Try not to focus too much on, on the products, but think about the incentives around that. You know, who, who's gaining? What do they have to gain from using this? Is it an organization that actually has other investments around improving climate-related outcomes? Or there are some examples of greenwashing that are so outrageous that, you know, I think you should be able to spot them. And I think, you know, and organizations need to be held to account for that. I think we see from, you know, the ongoing and growing debates around ESG and also around, you know, around B Corps that, you know, a label often isn't enough right? Saying this is ESG, saying that we have social development in our DNA doesn't really mean anything unless you actually have the evidence to back it up. So I think the final thing is about that evidence, right? You need to be serious about tracking, about measuring and tracking and understanding impacts in order to have a much better sense of what is actually doing good and what is, you know, what's fluff around it. Yeah, I think an important area for us all and, and something the impact measurement piece of it especially is, is something we're going to need to create more of a framework around and have a more kind of industry level thinking behind it. But last question for you, you know, we know that 3.3 billion people are climate vulnerable, which is, you know, almost around half of the world's population. What, what do you think we need to do to reach those, you know, 3.3 billion people? What's your kind of, if you had one, your, your call to action for in particular, you know, given our audience, the inclusive fintech industry. The 3.3 billion number is obviously absolutely massive. I think we need to be realistic about what financial services, what fintech can achieve, you know, what, who can be served by these models, you know, what is a realistic scale? I don't think there's so much value in being overly optimistic about what fintech can do, right? There's some people who are not going to, you are going to be excluded from the financial system um, because of their poverty, because of their remoteness. I think we need to be realistic about it. One thing I'd really like to see is more, and I think is going to be important, is this, the kind of fintech social enterprise. I don't know of many kind of uh, social enterprise, non-for-profit fintechs, but I think something like climate 
a lot of these issues aren't going to be solved on a purely commercial basis, right? There's going to be there's going to be a need for subsidy. There's going to be a need for partnerships between the financial sector and governments and and development sector and innovative ways of of channeling funding to these institutions. You know, I think that we can get carried away with looking for you know sustainable business models, and I think that there could be particularly in a scope like this scope for more role for for social enterprise. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And and right, I think yeah, all kinds of, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, I mean, we, we have to be more open to the kind of solutions that are going to bring us to something sustainable and long-term here. Thank you, Howard, for, for this conversation and for your insights. Incredibly valuable framework and, you know, structuring of how we should think about this space. So really appreciate your, your time today. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Tune in next week when we talk to Mylise Carraro, the managing partner of the Catalyst Fund, a pre-seed fund and accelerator that's backing high-impact tech startups, improving the resilience of underserved, climate-vulnerable communities in emerging markets. When we started about a year ago exploring this space, there were not a lot of investors looking at climate resilience adaptation, especially at the early stage, especially in Africa, maybe two or three. Now that's changing. We are aware even just in a circle of investors, like the group that we engage with and, and share our pipeline with, there's at least 30 that are now either launching climate funds or uh, adding a climate lens to their own investment pieces or at least asking to talk with our company. That's a great sign. <laughs>